invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. As this morning we continue or we begin to our descent toward the end of our summer series of the I Am Statements of Jesus. Beginning of the summer we announced this would be our study. Uh, we were probably a little misleading at that point in that most of our studies this summer haven't been in that, era, in that but uh, these past few, last week with Camper picking it back up and the next two weeks we'll be looking at uh, these statements that Jesus has identified himself as uh, throughout, uh, particularly the, the Gospel of John. In a couple of weeks, beginning on September the 11th, we'll begin our new sermon series. will be a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. We'll be in that uh, during the normal times of the year uh, for a while, uh, and we'll have holidays and summer elsewhere. But So we'll continue with the specific statements, and then we'll begin back at the beginning and see as the Lord has revealed himself through those statements in John's gospel. This morning our text is John 14, verse 6. For the sake of context, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. And so hear the word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May the Lord bless us, grant us understanding from his word. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving for the word that you have recorded for us. And knowing that it is not about just giving us stuff to know, but that it is about shaping our lives and orientation to you that you have given us this word. And so I pray that you would open not only our minds that we may understand, but our hearts that we might receive, and that together, by the work of your Holy Spirit, you might shape our hearts and minds, that we might grow to be more like Christ. May we see him, may he be seen in us. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Hardwired within every human heart is a longing for our lives to have meaning. We all want to know where it is we've come from. We want to know where we are going. And we want our life experiences to make sense in our story and our lives to be part of something bigger, some bigger plan. I think the disciples were wrestling with this at the point that we find them in our text. They were challenged. They had committed to following Jesus, they had walked with him, they had learned from him, they had changed. Their hope was in him and their expectation for the future was tremendous. They had these visions, these visions had been shaped and Jesus had demonstrated that he had the ability to be the person to lead them to their fulfillment and to their arrival. And then Jesus in the text tells them he's going away. They were stunned, feeling a number of emotions. 
One is they were feeling the same pain that any of us feel when somebody we love goes away, even if they're just moving away. They're just not going to be in our lives day to day. But even more than that, we get the sense from the questions they ask, both those that we read and if you were to read a little bit further, they were confused. They were frustrated. And they were fearful. They asked some questions that make sense. The one that we read from Thomas, Jesus said, I'm going away and you know how to get where I'm going. And Thomas said, speaking for all of them, we don't even know where you're going. How would we know the way? And then later we see that the questions continue. And they're trying to make sense of their circumstance, of what seems to be incomplete and the incongruency of where they are and where they hope to be. There are questions behind, behind the questions because they just feel like they don't know where they fit in. They want their lives to have meaning, value, purpose, and make sense. It's interesting that it's not only those who are religious the followers of Jesus Christ that have that desire within them. According to a man named Simon Davis, even those who are not religious, atheists, share that same desire. In July of this year, uh, Sam, uh, Davis, Simon Davis wrote a, a, an editorial, an article for the Religious News Service that was titled with a question, Why do so many nuns believe in life after death? Now, it's important to clarify because if you were to read the title, it would make a whole lot more sense than hearing the title. By nuns, he means N-O-N-E-S, people with no religious faith, not nuns, the ones running around with little habits on their head. <laughs> so we need to make that clear. Why do so many nuns believe? Because it is, does seem incongruous. These are people that are now checking, and social, uh, social studies have indicated that over the past decade, the number of people who have asked what religious affiliation they have that check none has escalated significantly. There's people that either just decide they, they don't know what they believe, they're not affiliated with anything. Significant increase in the number of people who declare themselves to be atheist and agnostic. There's a rise in this number of the people who are all around us. And yet, studies have indicated that of those people, incongruent with their claim to have no religious faith is they believe and they hope for a life after death. In fact, more than 32% of professed atheists believe that there is a life that is after death. It's a fascinating story uh, the, uh, as they were digging into that. Any number of reasons, but I think the most obvious is hardwired into all of us is this desire to know what our lives are about. New Testament scholar named Andreas Kostenberger says this, to know truth and to have life beyond the grave are the great aspirations of humankind. And yet we also need to acknowledge, or at least to recognize, that the answers to the questions that would give us meaning in our lives cannot be found by looking within ourselves and even within the world that is around us. I mean, think about it for a moment. Most scientists, or we understand from science, that the reality is the building blocks of our bodies are basically the same as the building blocks of everything else in all creation. Scientists tell us that the atoms that form our body used to be the stuff of stars. 
And so anything that is, anything that we see that is made of matter has the same basic components in the building blocks. So it's difficult for us to say, see how different we are. We are made of the same thing. That doesn't give us any meaning, any value in, in our lives. And yet, even when we know that biologically that's the reality, we know that there's something unique about man. The very fact that we have the ability of self-reflection, the ability that we have to wonder and to be awed and the, uh, just the propensity for, for worship, even the longing for meaning itself is an indication that there's something different about us. The scripture tells us it's because we, though are dust, are made by God after the image of God. And he's hardwired it within us to have that desire. Augustine has famously said, you created us for yourself and therefore our hearts are restless until we find our satisfaction in you. And I believe that's what people are experiencing. And so we can't find within our own biological makeup. We can't even find within the world something that will give us ultimate meaning. Think about what scientists tell us about the world that we live in and really even the, the universe as a whole. I mean, they, they tell us that the universe as we know it was created at some point in the past that what was once some infinite singularity one day exploded in some kind of a, a big bang. But even if we had the ability to trace back to the moments prior to that explosion and to evaluate whatever was, it still wouldn't answer some very basic questions one is, what caused the Big Bang? Another is, okay, if everything exploded, then why is there now something instead of nothing, when apparently before there was nothing? How does an explosion that breaks everything up become something that is significant? The reality is, even if we could trace back to those very that very point, we would still not have the capacity to answer the questions. We wouldn't know anything more than we know right now. The answers that we desire, that we long for, to give our lives meaning, don't come from within ourselves or even in our understanding of the cosmos, as important as those things may be. But if we're going to find the answers to the questions that will give meaning to our lives, those questions are going to have to be answered by someone who comes from outside of creation and is above the creation and is able to tell us how everything fits together and why things matter. And in these words, at this point that Jesus is speaking, while it's a somewhat simple conversation that's taking place, Jesus is doing that very thing when he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, like all of the I am statements, Jesus is making a clear declaration, clear enough that people were offended, scandalized, and wanted him dead. They heard very clearly what he was saying when he says, I am. He's declaring to be God, the very God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who has all authority, the one who rules all things. And the religious leaders at the time thought that was a bit audacious. They were offended. And the penalty for that kind of audacity was death because they thought it was blasphemy that he was robbing glory from God. 
The only way he wouldn't be robbing glory from God is if he is God. And Jesus is making that clear declaration, whether you or I want to acknowledge him as God or not, this is clearly what he's declaring. He is God. And as God, he's coming and speaking to people who are confused about the way that their life is unfolding. People who are wondering, how are we going to make our way forward? And how are the experiences we've had, how do the things that we deal with from this point forward, how are they going to make sense? How are we going to reach our ultimate destination? The desire of the disciples was heaven. The desire of the people, uh, that even 32% of all Western atheists, is heaven, life after death. How are we going to get there? And the disciples specifically asked the question, and how are we going to know God? How are we going to, how are we going to, know, going to know what God is like if you're not here to tell us? And Jesus gives the answer to them by saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And we want to unpack those here this morning. The first thing we begin with is Jesus declaring, I am the way. And here again, Jesus is making a very clear statement. He's telling us that he and he alone is the way to know the one true God, the one who has made everything, the one who made you, the one who cares for you more than you can understand. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God, then I'm the only way that you can do that. It's an exclusive claim that can't be ignored and can't be denied, at least that he's making that statement. We need to acknowledge for many people, perhaps even for some who are here, hearing that direct and exclusive statement sounds kind of like fingernails on a chalkboard to some people. Because we live in a world that, and in a culture that this exclusivity just doesn't seem fair. It seems too narrow. It can't possibly be true. There has to be more way than just one way. But clearly Jesus is saying there is no other way. And while even those of us who embrace it might find it difficult to understand, even though we're willing to submit to that reality, but there is a sense in which we understand it implicitly and instinctively from our own lives. This summer I had the opportunity to do something I haven't done in a few years. Something I used to do a lot, but it's been a while since I've had the opportunity. I got to spend some time and do some hiking in the Smoky Mountains, which once was a regular occurrence for me when I probably should have been in class in college. I was hiking in the Smokies, but that's a whole other issue. But if you've ever hiked in the Smokies, and probably in many of other places, but the Smokies in some ways in particular, you know how important it is to stay on the marked trails. There are 803 maintained paths within the Smokies. But if you were to leave them and make just a couple of wrong turns, you would find yourself desperately lost. Every year, scores of people, whether they're novice hikers and even some that are a little bit more advanced or at least uh, thinking that they are a little more advanced, find themselves lost, needing rangers and rescue teams to come and find them so they don't uh, meet their end out there in that wilderness. And it's a contrast, the contrast is starking because the beauty of the Smokies is so majestic and so inviting that it invites you in. And the different plant life and the animal life that you can find there certainly 
you want to explore as much as you can. But if you are not careful, if you leave the path, you may find yourself lost and unable to find your way back to where you want to go and to reach your destination. You need to stay on the marked paths because only certain paths lead you to your destination. And there's really no sense arguing about it. There's no sense complaining that that seems to be too restrictive, too narrow. My free will is violated in this. Why can't I wander where I want and still go where I will end up where I want to get? We know that's ridiculous. Even if you're not a hiker, you understand that instinctively that makes absolutely no sense. Don't come grumbling this afternoon if you hop on I-64 West and then don't reach Virginia Beach. You can try it, but I'm pretty sure it isn't going to happen. We understand that there are consequences for the paths that we choose, that paths lead somewhere. And if you're not on the path that leads to where you want to go, you're not going to get where it is that you want to go. It's simple, right? And Jesus is declaring, I am the way. He's saying, I'm the path. I'm the only way in which you are able to meet the Father. Only way that you can get to God. Now, some may object. The illustration is fine as far as it goes for geography and topography, but we're talking metaphysics here. So what, what in this, why does it have to be that in the spiritual realm that seekers can't follow their own paths and still end up all in the same place? It seems to be a reasonable question. Well, I'll go a step further. I guess it is a reasonable question. But when we need to take Jesus seriously here, and he's saying there is, he's the only path. And to understand the answer, not only from an illustration and a geographic standpoint, but in a spiritual sense, we need to also understand the nature of our own lostness. We need to understand that the root of our problem our alienation from God that is causing us to wonder what God is like and find that path to come to God, which is true for all of humanity, is not because we have done some bad things and now we're in trouble. The root is not our sins that we commit. Those are simply expressions of our alienation. Those are symptoms of our problem. The root problem that leaves us wondering about God, alienated from him from the very beginning, is not the bad things that we have done, and then God keeping a scorebook says, enough is enough. The root of our problem is that we all have a desire to choose and to walk our own path. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. That's the essence of our brokenness. That's the essence of our alienation from God. And because we each have chosen our own path, and we have that propensity, even as we are seeking to be reconciled to God, to continue to do so on our own terms, we find ourselves time and again lost, wandering, ill at ease. The religions of the world recognize that that's a common issue. The very fact that there are multiple religions is an indication that this is a universal problem. And what the religions of the world do, many of them with very noble and good aspects of them, is each tries to offer to lost people some pathway 
to the peace that they're looking for. But what I would suggest to you, again, if we take seriously what Jesus is saying, declaring that he alone is the way, is that all of these other religions, all of those paths, leave somebody, be like somebody who is lost in the Smokies, stumbles across a path that looks inviting, and begins to follow that, only to find out that it's not one of the paths that leads somewhere, but it's a game trail. It's been made by the wild boar and the deer and the elk that are walking through those woods. And so you follow this path that may look promising only to find yourself deeper and deeper in the lostness of the wilderness, in the thickets of spiritual wandering. But what Jesus is declaring to us, because this is all of our condition, he's not only making a declaration so that we can mark our path. He's coming to us even in our being lost in the spiritual thickets and saying, hey, it's this way. Follow me. I am the way. And Jesus is declaring, I am the way. I am the way to the Father. I am the way. Follow me. Jesus declares, I am the truth. And when he says this, it's important that we notice something here. Because Jesus is declaring to us that Truth is found in a person. It is not found in a proposition. And the reason that's important is because many of us as evangelicals, we've grown up or we present the gospel to people who are looking as if the essence of Christianity is found in a bullet points. And if we can check these things off, then we assume we are fine. And so we ask people questions like, well, do you believe in God? And what's the God like that you believe in? Okay, do you believe Jesus is the son of God who came into this world and then he died for your sins and then he rose again? Do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? And if we get the affirmations that we're looking for, we say, good, now you are a Christian. You have eternal life. And what's confusing about that is every one of those statements is true. And every one of those statements must be believed for us to experience the life in Christ that he promises and that we long for. And yet Jesus never, anywhere in the scriptures, encounters somebody and says, hey, check out my resume. You might want to look on my LinkedIn page too because you're going to find all sorts of stuff about me. And then once you know that stuff, you're on your way. What Jesus says is, Follow me. And there is a significant difference between a call to follow Jesus and him handing us his resume. An accurate, an impressive, an awesome resume. And the difference is in the basis of a relationship and the ability to truly know. Jesus calls us to follow him into relationship. And yes, we need to know things about him as we do in any relationship. It'd be very difficult for us to claim to be in relationship with somebody you know, Camper and I have been working together for a, good, a few years. We have a really good relationship. What do you know about him? Nothing. I mean, is he married? I don't know. Uh, that's, you know. There's a, you might hint, huh, there's a little problem here between this, us. And so we learn truths. But the other fact of the matter is we can research people and we feel like we know them. But then when you actually experience their presence, you realize I had a totally wrong idea of who they are. And many of us as Christians have that same problem. We've studied the bullet points. We know the bullet points. We can spout out the bullet points. And we need to. We need to 
believe them. We need to remind ourselves. We need to proclaim them to people because they are important truths, but they cannot be a substitute for the person of Jesus Christ who says, follow me. And he says, I am the truth. There's a noted historian. His name is Yuroslav Pelikan, who says, the problem is the Bible was written by Jews and is interpreted by Gentiles. And what he's getting at is this, is that the Gentiles, the, the Greek mindset that we embrace assumes that if we know stuff, if we believe stuff, that that's all there is to knowledge. But to the Jewish mind that Jesus was speaking from and speaking to, you know what you do. In other words, you may have your checklist of theology and know all of it, and it may all be true. But if you want to know what you really believe, ask yourselves, what do I do? If I really believe that God is good and he's in control of all things, then why do I find myself so frequently on the edge of depression that many of you struggle with as well? Why am I so anxious? If I really believe that God is going to provide for me, why am I so calculating about my future? If I really believe that God is in control of all things, why is prayer such a chore at times? If I really believe that God is going to work out all things and he understands me better than I understand myself and he therefore has set one day in seven to be a day that I come into his presence and rest in him, why is it that Sabbath seems to be something that is unproductive? We want to know what we believe, according to the Jewish mind, and this is what Jesus was continually teaching. We, we know by what we do. And Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, and they know stuff about him. They still believe that he is, he is the Messiah, he is the Lord. And if you believe that, you follow him. But their problem is, is they haven't put it all together yet. And so they still have questions. A few verses after what we read, Jesus is going away and they ask, okay, show us what the Father is like, or show us the Father. And Jesus essentially is responding to them after he's made this statement, elaborating, and says, look, you, you're still not getting it. A friend of mine, when he talks about the disciples and he preaches about the disciples, his statement is, the disciples ought to actually be known as the disciples, because they just can't get it. And it's a good reminder for me because there's just so much that is reality that I know and I forget. So much that is clearly there for me to see in the person of Christ about God, and I just haven't seen it. That I may not be a great disciple, but I am a great disciple. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth. If you want it, he says to them, if you, if you know me, you know the Father. And he's making a very clear statement that if you want to know God, you study Jesus. John understood this later because in the prologue to this very book, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him there is nothing that has been made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of this only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And the Apostle Paul picks up on this as well, and he elaborates on the same claim that Jesus is making, I am the truth. If you want to know what God is like, study Jesus. When Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then for him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is declaring, I am the truth. And we who wonder about God, Jesus is inviting us to study him. And we come to know the Father, not only because through Jesus we have access to the Father, Jesus came by his cross to purchase that reconciliation. But we have an intimacy because Jesus and the Father in some mysterious way that I can't fully comprehend is a distinct individual and yet inseparable from God the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What Jesus is saying to us as I am the life, he's saying I am the life of God. There are three words in the Greek for the word life. Camper touched on this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time here. One word is bios, means biology. It's the physical making. And when Jesus says, I am the life, it certainly would have been appropriate for him to have used that word because he's the creator of all things. Heaven, earth, everything that has been created, everything that is sustained is his. So Jesus could have said, I am the bios, I am the life. And that would have been good. Because most of us prefer breathing to not breathing, for the body to function and, as opposed to not functioning. And that itself would have been a tremendous gift, but that's not what he said. The second Greek word is suke, and from which we get psychology, psych and so it deals with kind of the inner person, our emotions, our being, the way we process things. Jesus could have said that as well, because Jesus is not only concerned with us living and breathing, but he's, in, he's concerned with the, the whole person. And yet he doesn't say that word. Jesus uses the word zoe here, which essentially is life abundantly. It is a fullness of life, life to the fullest. And Jesus says, I am that life. Essentially, it's the life of God, life abundant, life to the fullest. If you've ever seen the movie Dead Poet Society, there's a scene there that I think kind of captures the essence of what zoe that Jesus is and is giving to us. Robin Williams plays a, a prep school English teacher named John Keating back in the 1950s. And he's trying to teach these privileged boys whose only intention is to go through the classes they need to get the grades they need to get into an Ivy League school, or I guess William and Mary. Uh, but, um, <laughs> and so he's teaching poetry to a bunch of teenage guys. Means he's got a tough road to hoe because most teenage guys aren't interested, and if they are, it's only so they can impress some girl. It's just all utilitarian, and now it's for the purpose of, of grades. And recognizing their lack of excitement about the subject, with great passion, John Keating addresses his class and he says, Boys, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passions. Medicine, law, business, engineering, 
These are all noble pursuits, and they are necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, this is why we live life. This is what we are alive for. And in that essence, he's capturing really the zoe that God has come to give us. Jesus come, not so simply that you live and breathe and you can live for your 70 plus years and extend and then be very happy, excited when the tables can, the uh, insurance tables come out and say, hey, you can expect now to live to 78 instead of, which is exciting the most, unless, of course, you're one of the ones that's here who's already 80. That's probably not a good, uh, but um, it's not exciting to know that we're just breathing. That should be foundational. But what gives us a desire to love, uh, to, to live is these other things, and these are within God's purview. He's the one that's created the beauty of the creation, the beauty of the arts. He's the one that's created the idea of the intimacy with another person and friendships, marriage, all of this, God has created as part of life, life in him, the life of God. And Jesus comes and says, I am the life that's found in him. But the amazing thing about his statement there is Jesus is not saying, I am the way and the truth. I didn't come just to show you how to get to God and to tell you about God and then to point the way so that you can get life. He says, I am the life. I have come to give that life to you, not simply to point the way for you. Which brings us to one other thing that we need to note in our, in our passage here about I am the life. And perhaps this is the most important thing for some of us who are here today. We need to note here that when Jesus says, I am the life, he clearly has what we'll call eschatological intentions, but also present reality. And for those of you who don't speak weird theological language, we'll translate that for you. Quite clearly, Jesus is talking about heaven here in this passage because he's saying, hey, I'm going, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back with you, and I'm going to bring you to where I am. And so Jesus is clearly talking about heaven as we think about it. And it would be very tempting to now get our curiosity and look at this passage and see what we can mine out of it to understand what will heaven be like. There's two problems we have with that. First of all is, while it's not an inappropriate question, and, and there are things we can glean from that, it's not the primary focus of the text. And I don't have time to talk about it. So I will just commend to you, if this passage kindles within you a hunger to know what heaven is like, I'll commend to you Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, which is tremendous, taking scripture and allowing you to think what the Bible says about heaven. But more important is it's not the primary emphasis, Jesus. It's just the reality of something. And the life that he is promising that is to come, Jesus is not speaking in future tense. He's speaking in present tense. He isn't saying, I will show you the life. I'll be there for you. I'll point to it. I am the life. And in that statement, we need to remind ourselves regularly. We need to understand and remind ourselves that the essence of Christianity is not that we follow a set of rules and standards in this life, and if we do well enough, then we get a reward at the end of the rainbow. Or, even better understood, as we have rules and regulations in this life, we don't fail to fulfill them, so therefore we claim Christ and his death in our place, and therefore we're given some reward that he deserves in our place at the end of the rainbow. There is truth in that because Jesus is talking about that which is to come. The scriptures talk about the world that is to come, the kingdom of God that is still to come in its fulfillment. But just as we talk about the kingdom sometimes, theologians use a phrase now but not yet. 
In other words, there is more to come when God fully reigns and everyone on earth recognizes the reality of God, is awed by him, follows him, worships him, and delights in him. That's not our life now. But Christianity is a taste. Jesus living in Christ is a taste of that life that is to come, and we experience it even now as a present reality in Jesus. We can have peace that doesn't make any sense in a world that is certainly full of unrest. We can have joy even when we ourselves are experiencing rejection, hardship. We can have all sorts of the characteristics that we long for, even in a world that would not cultivate but actually mitigate them. Because we are following Jesus. The life that he gives is in Jesus, and it is a life now. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And these are awesome aspects as we recognize what he's inviting us to. I'm going to wrap up with this and just simply say this. I don't know necessarily how your lives are unfolding before you right now or what's going to come in the days ahead. So you may have a number of questions and wondering why, if I'm experiencing this, or why am I not experiencing this, and how does this all fit in? To you, you should be encouraged, if you have trusted in Christ already, to say, to understand that he is working it out, and we find the meaning in him, and we find the direction in him, we find the hope and everything in him. We also know that we live in a, in a culture where a lot of people are very concerned, believers and unbelievers alike. There's some that might look and see the natural disasters, the flooding that's taking place in Louisiana, the earthquakes that are leaving people in their homes devastated, and realizing that we live in a world that has many expressions of just tragedy. You might be concerned when you read the newspapers and see the escalation of, of violence and racial tension as evidence of evil. I even suspect that if Alabama wins another national championship, it's evidence of evil in this world, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but. but we know that it's there, and then so many people that are looking for hope have given up the hope and given up the search, and you may be inclined to do that as well. And then you might be just fatalistic and say, okay, I believe in God, I'm going to go to heaven, that's all there is to it, or you may just say, forget the whole thing. But a lot of people have now adopted an attitude that says this, look, believe whatever you want. Just keep it to yourself. Because they are so tired of the religious and culture wars. But we need to understand that what Jesus is saying in this particular passage to us is so glorious that it is reason for our hope and excitement. And that in this statement, Jesus has not left open to us the option that he is a good teacher and is pointing away. And that he is one and maybe even the best choice among many. He's not left that open to us. He's made the declaration of exclusivity and promise and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe there's a God, you want to believe there's a God, then believe in me, then you will know God. That's what he's saying to his disciples. And as it's been said before, all life is God's life. All truth is God's truth. But in Christ Jesus alone, the way, the truth, and the life are embodied. May we look to him. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this word. And may we find the, and reroute our purpose, our identity, and our worth, not in our accomplishments or our failures,
but our place in Christ as he has offered himself to all who believe. Father, kindle a belief. And then with that belief, may we be awed and driven to study him more. And in studying him, not just in an academic way, but to walk with him, commune with him, to truly know him. May we not only have the joy of knowing God, but may we be more and more turned to be like him. We pray this with the hope of the promise of your Holy Spirit, that your word does not come back void, and that what you have begun, you will see through to the end. Father, to you all praise, for our hope is in you, in Christ Jesus. Amen.